Hello, I am Angelina, your host of Empathetic Witness. This morning, we have a repeated guest, Dr. Mervyn from BC. She is a clinical psychologist specializing in youth treatment. Please grab yourself a coffee, sit a while, and listen to our conversation. Without further ado, here is Dr. Mervyn. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for joining me once again. You are my That's first right. repeat guest. <laughs> I mean, it, it just goes to show that, you know, we're dealing with a lot of trauma in Indian country, but just not First Nations, but right across Canada. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's um, so, I mean, before we go on, let me... Um, ask you to introduce yourself again so we have it clear your name clear and your who you are wonderful i am dr jennifer mervin and i am uh, metis on my father's side with my ancestral ties all the way back to red river i'm european on my mom's side and i am raising three incredible children who are also cherokee and muskogee on their father's side. So, and I'm a registered psychologist and I am in clinical practice, but I really am passionate about, you know, teaching and training and consulting and making macro level changes when it comes to trauma informed policies, practices, and procedures when it comes to all sectors from policing to education to healthcare that's really where I would love to see some systems change and action take place. Mm, that's that's a really critical, you know, that you have all these really great experience. And I think before we, you know, go further, I want to acknowledge the recent discovery in Saskatchewan of more residential school um, bones. I think it's important to acknowledge mm -hmm. this discovery, which was yesterday, January 12th. And um, maybe, maybe you can talk to what does this type of ongoing discoveries do psychologically to residential school survivors? Like for my, you know, for myself, I am a residential school survivor. And hearing mm -hmm. this news yesterday really touched me deeply. And, and it is like being traumatized again, because then you, you brings your mind back to residential school. And for me, I didn't have a very difficult or traumatic experience in residential school. I think the, the degree of experience, trauma was just being separated from my my family but i wasn't sexually or physically abused and yet this news of this discovery still i still feel traumatized mhm mm 
Well, and it's interesting. I mean, even that's like, I am going to respectfully and lovingly challenge you on your perception of your own experience a little bit, if you'll allow me. Oh, yes, um, and definitely. Yeah. Because I mean, it's it's interesting, you know, the, the landmark ACEs research, which I, I quote and refer back to all the time, because I do believe it to be one of the most influential you know, pieces of research when it comes to healthcare in um, in our generation Mm -hmm. is they look at those 10 different categories of trauma. So the 10 most, um, you know, the the categories that impact us the most overall and that have long-term impacts on our physical health and well-being longitudinally. Well, one of those categories is any separation from a parent or caregiver. So knowing that that is one of the most powerful, influential traumatic experiences in our lifetime. And you're like, oh, the only thing I endured was that separation. It's like, my goodness, the thing you endured was a separation. And how traumatic that incredibly is, is it's powerful for me to hear you talk like that. And I think that that's, that's how so many trauma survivors injure and survive is by minimizing this the scope and impact of their trauma and saying well other people have it have it worse than us and i think that that comparing can be um challenging for us to be able to heal and and move on it's when we can really sort of face and understand the impacts of that on us and and feel the full weight of of what we went through that we can actually be able to accept and and learn to to really have that as part of our narrative or our story and then what that means for us in being able to move forward in our healing journey thank you yeah you're you're absolutely right i mean that you know i mean i think we it's a mechanism like you say it's mm-hmm. a protection right that we yes we develop and definitely for sure because you know when I, you know, in listening to that story of of the the bones that were found yesterday, that were discovered yesterday, mm-hmm. and then when the coroner said, you know, it's about the size of a five, six-year-old mm-hmm. child, that's what gives me the kind of the residual trauma because, you know, when I was in residential school, that's how old I was. <laughs> Right. And so I hear of of a a child, a traumatic experience for a child, then I feel it in me. And um, I remember when I was going to um, the University of um, 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 in Poland and we went to concentration camps and they were Mm. they were showing us you know, the, a film of, um, you know, all the, the uh, people that were, were picked up and, and put into the concentration camps and the children, when I saw the children, that's what really, you know, struck me the most was seeing children amongst, you know, some of the adults and just how terrified they may have been, you know, so I do relate I think more, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's, it's the trauma is refocused when, when there's children, it seems to be more present for me. Well, and isn't it interesting because I think that's when we can actually really 
get into a place of vulnerability is when we consider children, right? Like it, yeah. when I do tra- trauma work, I, I am working with um, someone right now who's really having a hard time with with self-love and self-care. And, you know, one of the exercises that, that I commonly use is, you know, when you have such a hard time looking at your adult self in the eyes in the mirror and saying, I love you and you're worth it and you are worthy, you know, one of the exercises I use is to, is to find a picture of yourself when you were a child where you f- really first remember the erosion of that sense of self-worth um, and lovability. And you look at that child and man, it is so much easier to connect and become vulnerable with that child and tell that child you are worth it and you are lovable than it is sometimes to really connect that to our adult selves. And yet we are, <laughs> we're the same we're still the same. We're the same person. We are that child. Um, and that's where some of that, I think, personal growth work can really be done is when we connect in because we see children as lovable and vulnerable and, you know, worthy of love and care and affection and attention. And so it's when we get back into that place with that child who we once were and who still lives within us, that I think we actually find some avenues for healing. But I want to go back to just the, the piece around, um, you know, children and being separated and the residential school legacy and why it's so, why it is so traumatic, why the impacts on a developing brain are, are so adverse. And I think one of the biggest reasons is, is that, you know, it doesn't matter what culture we, we look at across all cultures. One of the most important and essential ingredients for healthy and normal development in childhood is a strong, caring, attachment-based relationship to our primary caregivers. And so whenever you rupture that, whenever there is a break or a separation from who loves and cares for us, whether that's mom, dad, or auntie and uncle, or whoever it might be that's providing us with that care, that disruption of attachment and how we may internalize messages Um, about what that means for us and how lovable or how wanted we are or uh, that's that's where we see trauma because there's so many different pieces that we can take away from what that separation means and what it means about us and who we are and our identity and I think that's where a lot of the trauma really occurs is in that disrupted attachment where we don't feel that safe secure connection and protection from our primary caregivers. And that in and of itself can be incredibly traumatic for for a child. I agree 100%. Um, And so in that case, you know, as you know, as we, you know, just touch on the discovery of yesterday, what goes on physiologically in the survivor when they hear that type of news right i think that you know it is really different you know i wouldn't want to like you know broad strokes say that every survivor is going to you know have the re-experiencing of trauma symptoms but for many people it can and part of it is it, it really is a bringing to the surface of a connecting to the experience that you know, even yourself, where where some people do choose to minimize, some people choose to deny, some people choose to avoid, all those are trauma related symptoms. And it's very, very hard when the news presents us with this, like, very factual, like, this 
did happen. This is true. This happened in more than one community. It's very, very hard to use those old coping mechanisms of minimization and denial and avoidance when we're confronted with it in the news. So it is, this is real. And this did happen. This happened to me. And so we we don't get to use those. We have to say, oh my goodness. And what does that mean for me? And how did it impact me? Um, and how how could anybody let this happen? So we do see for some people um, a huge resurgence in more active trauma symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. Of re-experiencing like flashbacks, like nightmares, like um, even just disconnection and dissociation from our present reality, because it's it, that again too is a is a coping mechanism with trauma. So. We, we we can have, you know, a full sort of resurgence of old symptoms and they range, you know, from some being really acute to some people, you know, not even necessarily tying that symptomatology into what's happening with these, these news stories, right? Not even being necessarily fully aware that that's what's happening for them. Um, but it's, I think it's, it's so important that finally this information is coming um, to the surface, I think for the general public, and definitely it's it started a lot of conversations that I've never had before with other professionals, with colleagues, with peers, with friends, with family um, that really haven't been, I think, top of our conversations in the past. So while I'm grateful for that, my heart aches for you know people like yourself who have endured it and where it is going to be re-traumatizing for you. Thank you. Yes, it's, um, you know, what, when I'm thinking about it, I, I, I'm always drawn to the, to the, the aspect of myself. I have this condition called aphantasia. And simply all it means is I cannot, you know how, if I tell you, imagine a red ball on a table you can mm-hmm. voluntarily imagine it like I, it, you can imagine it in your mind. Right. I have none of that in my mind. Like I can't, I can't voluntarily create images in my mind. I can't bring up, um, you know, music or sound in my mind. Some people can, can hear music in their mind. I know my husband's always listening to music in his mind and he's humming away to, um, but I don't have any of that in my mind. And so I'm wondering, in that case, would the trauma I experience be less because I can't imagine, I can't have a a picture of it in my mind, I can't have a voice in my mind. It's like, for example, you know, when you talk about, you know, looking at children when trauma happens, I, it makes me think about I have a difficult relationship with one of my nephews. And when I was young, probably about 10 or 11, I lived with him and his, uh, my brother and his wife, and he was a baby then. And my brother actually was really abusive to his wife. And I remember mm. seeing them fight you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and 
So when I think of my nephew that I have a difficult relationship with, I think of him as a baby and the trauma that he experienced. And, and I'm able to let go whatever it is that he finds difficult with me. You know what I mean? So I, mm-hmm. I can let that go because it really is because he's been traumatized. Right. Yeah. I think it's, well, just to go back to your first point, I mean, I don't know if you know, um, you know, you, the origins of your aphantasia, but if it's non-congenital in nature, we actually have seen aphantasia as a result, as, as a coping response to trauma. Mm, yeah, I never investigated it for myself because I only discovered that I had this after after I had a partial stroke during surgery. Oh, wow. But I think I had it all along. I just didn't know it. And I was doing some reading and then it came up. Or actually, I wasn't doing some reading. I was talking to somebody and then it came up that, yeah, I can't imagine that. <laughs> I, I can't imagine, you know, I think I was talking about, you know, I was I was designing a garden and mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine what it would look like after. And, you know, even though, you know, I had pictures of the plants and where it was going to go, I had no mm-hmm way of visualizing until it was actually planted. But I didn't know about the the issue that I had with aphantasia until just four years ago. Wow. Well, and a, and a bit of a blessing and a curse, isn't it, right? It is, yes. Because, yeah, it is. And that's why, I mean, there isn't robust research in this area, but there definitely um, is some literature and questions about aphantasia caused specifically by trauma. Because if you think about it, what an adaptive way for your brain to be able to cope. Yes. And then you kind of, then it draws the question, what horrible thing happened to me mm-hmm. <laughs> that I want to block out, right? Because mm-hmm. even when I, because, you know, what aphantasia, aphantasia did for me or does for me is because I can't imagine an image Mm -hmm. or hear a sound in my head I actually have developed stronger feelings impressions of things that happen Mm. so you know people often comment on how good my memory is because my memory is based on feelings and impressions that occur. And even with, you know, like I said, you know, with my brother and his abusiveness to his wife, I can't see the picture, but I can feel what happened. Right. I was hearing what was going on. And in some ways, maybe that is even heightened. Yes. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, our brains really are created, you know, they develop in ways that do protect us, right? I mean, the the things that we've talked about in the past, like how, you know, our our hippocampus actually is, is reduced in size and volume when exposed to trauma or social isolation. And we know the hippocampus is, is really responsible for, 
you know, consolidating things into long-term memory. And we wonder why after a trauma, why we have these like blocks in our memory and we can't really remember. Well, I mean, what a wonderful adaptive way for our brain to protect us from not having access to those memories that really might be incredibly painful and difficult for us to manage. I think our brains are, um, they're, they're, they're often protecting us and acting in ways that maybe we don't fully understand. Like maybe you didn't fully understand why you're not able to have this visual imagery, but, but for you, maybe it really protected you from something, you know, quite horrible or very, very difficult for you to be able to manage at at a young age. And this is one of the ways that your brain adapts to help you cope. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. Or maybe it's something totally different. (laughs) Well, and there's, and there, there definitely is genetic links to aphantasia as well. So there's there, that could be a possibility for sure. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's interesting. I find it more of a, um, I see it as kind of like my superpower because if I can't create an image, then my superpower is just a deeper sense of felt feelings. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, he- heightened emotional experiences. It makes perfect yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. And, and that is a superpower. What a beautiful thing. Right. And I always said, like, I, I, I consider myself, I mean, I definitely, I can't imagine it in in the absence of of the visual imagery piece, but I mean, I think that I'm probably a deeper feeler than than some, and um, it's it's my own blessing and curse. And I do believe it to be my superpower because man, does it ever allow me to feel some of life's most intense emotions, and I'm so so grateful for that. And any day, I will take the pain and the sadness and the despair alongside the joy and the elation and the deep sense of gratitude that I seem to carry um, pretty freely in my heart. So I, I, I totally agree with you. It's a superpower to be able to feel deeply and passionately in this life. And I wouldn't change it for anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that's, that's, well, that's the way I look at it. And uh, anyway, enough about me. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about um, initially I, I connected with you because I wanted to talk to you about something you are, have a lot of experience in, and that's working with youth. And I was wondering how the impact of the two and a half years being closed off socially for many youth and, you know, some of the, um, I guess, parents that I know that have children around my son's age, you know, 20 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and these young, young adolescents or young adults, you know, like my son withdrew from school uh, when the pandemic started and he was mm-hmm. in his fourth year, but he's been home now for the last two and a half years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some of the mothers I am talking to, they're, expressing to me concern about their young adults with anxiety and Mm -hmm. um, and and I so let's talk about that Mm -hmm. yeah it's definitely in my in my private practice I have never seen uh, I mean I I had to close my my wait list because I have more than two years of a wait list now because of young people and I mean I'm known working for um mental health, definitely for young people, but, you know, I have a general practice 
And anxiety is is at an all-time high for young people. And I think the impacts, like, you know, going back to our medicine wheel teachings, like definitely the impacts are across the board. So emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually too, because of loss of engagement with so many opportunities to build community and connect in with sources of strength and our natural ways of coping. Uh, and definitely, the, especially the, you know, the social implications for, you know, cutting people off from connections during the pandemic um, has has hit hard and hit home. And we are really starting to feel the impacts right now. So um, I would say it's not just university students, but I have a number of younger students in elementary school and in high school who are struggling with attendance, school avoidance, and incredible social anxiety um, like never before. And I think it's it's going to take a while to be able for us to, to heal from this and move on. And it's so interesting because I actually hear that the universities and the, the high schools that I work with closely, they're saying that they're, they recognize this, they want to do well by these young people. And so they're offering them opportunities to gather and connect and social connections and youth aren't showing up. Right. So yes. we, we need to look at one step before that. And how are we going to build the bridge to re-engage our young people? Right. It's not just creating opportunities and dances and clubs and gatherings. But if we can't get people out because there's so much anxiety in terms of like, how do we make small talk again? Right. Yeah. How, you know, like what's a funny joke I can come up with right now? How, how do I, do I look people in the eye? Am I, do I shake hands? Do we hug? How do we, how do we do this in this new world? And it's, um, it's definitely taking a toll on our young people. Like I really, really, I, my heart goes out to you with your son. I'm struggling with, with my eldest daughter in her teen years as well for a lot of these same things with some school avoidance and man, as a parent, doesn't it just break your heart it's so it just makes us so nervous and anxious ourselves for our kids in terms of their success yeah though yeah yeah for sure definitely and you know and not and it it's it also is um you know touches on you know the socialization like where do they meet their partners because traditionally you know you meet you know, your boyfriend, your girlfriend in high school and university, you, you end up marrying, you know, other students. And that's where you meet, meet other people. Mm-hmm. But since the shutdown, they're not going out there. They're not meeting. So they're not, so they're going to have to get comfortable with themselves to even get to the point where, like you say, you know, what, how do they engage other people? Do they, you know, shake their hands? Do they look in their eyes? You know, can they, how do they speak to each other? And it's so much more of a learning curve. I mean, it's awkward enough as it is to date, you know, in normal circumstances, but having it in this era is even more complicated. Isn't that the truth? Oh my goodness. I can't agree more. And it has been hard. I mean, dating, uh, Absolutely. My young people who've who've talked about, you know, like we've had historically like a few school dances by now and now they've got one coming up and it's so new. They've never been to one before in their life. So then they are avoiding and not engaging and not doing that piece. 
for things. It would be super interesting to to look at the research in terms of some of the social impacts and to see um, how those relationships have been affected. But yes, even, and not just dating, but even just building friendships. If you think about how friendships evolve over the course of time through someone's school journey, all of those things are being impacted. How do we make friends? You know, who are we going out with? That that all is um, we're, we're experiencing the ripple effects right now post post COVID. But I think really even just on a you know a self worth or self confidence level, people are really really struggling with not having been able to practice those skills of socialization in these last few years, and then being so complicated when they have made attempts to practice or implement you know just regular socialization. And I think we really are going to need to do more sort of hand over hand stuff in terms of teaching our kids how to socialize and how to interact. And do you make eye contact and what does touch look like asking for consent, making sure someone else is feeling comfortable, recognizing your own body and how you feel comfortable and how you're responding to people. It's uh, it's something that I think we're going to need to really look at how we teach more with more intention to our children that we've never had to do before because of a huge skills and learning gap in in what's ha- would happen naturally normally in the environments that they're in but that they've lost out on absolutely and with the you know how sometimes i mean even before covid you'd see adults that have like arrested development in terms of their their they just never grew up you know, they're still like mm-hmm. a 14 year old. So with this, would there be more arrested development? I believe we're seeing the results of that right now, right? I mean, anytime there's there's trauma, anytime we experience trauma, there is the potential for sort of emotional stunting at, at the age of that trauma is experienced. And we might, right? And that where, where growth just kind of gets halted in, until it's healed. And, and I think that, um, I mean, definitely we looked at in 2018 in the United States, they did a study on childhood trauma and found that in 2018, 75% of American children had experienced one profound childhood trauma. And that was pre-pandemic. Yeah. So can you only imagine now what that number is in terms of childhood trauma, right? I think that everybody's touched by it. Yeah. the impacts are going to vary, right? Depending on what type of supports they had. If, if that, that stress really became toxic because they were isolated and didn't have the supports they needed to be able um, to keep that stress within a tolerable range, you know, but for, for a number of young people, that stress did become toxic to their developing brain and body. And, you know, how are we helping promote environments that are going to be able to encourage young people to to heal and continue to grow um, so that they can have full and healthy lives that aren't anxiety-ridden and stressful when it comes to social interactions. Social interactions should be one of the most beautiful parts of our of our lives, right? Where we get excited to see our friends and 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 happy to connect with family. And now when you hear, you know, we just went through the Christmas holidays, the number of young people who were anxious about gatherings yes. over those holidays in my practice, I can't tell you. And how how disheartening and sad that is for me to hear that you're anxious to connect with friends and family. Yeah. Yeah. Never mind strangers. That's I mean, right. 
even before the pandemic, years ago, my, well, a person that I know um, developed, what is that phobia of going out? Like she couldn't leave. Agoraphobia. Yeah, yeah. She couldn't leave her, her apartment, her house at all. But then she met her her husband, her boyfriend, then became her husband. And then she became a travel agent and traveled the world. But I don't know what wow. he did to help her. But she was able to get past that phobia to travel mm-hmm. the world. Wow. So I don't know what's, what tools we need for these young young adults to help them so that they don't become so fearful of the outside world that they're not living. They're not mm-hmm. going out and meeting people. And that's just, you know, going to the store to pick up groceries. Like that's going outside the home because of the fear that, you know, the last, well, COVID has, you know, there's all this fear about becoming sick. I had mm-hmm. two sisters that ended up in ICU and were intubated because of COVID. And wow. thankfully they they survived and they got through it. But I, I can imagine young people, you know, they hear it in the news, they hear people dying, they hear, you know, this mm-hmm. must be imprinting something in their brain about how dangerous it is out there. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that that is where some of the trauma occurs, right? It's with those sort of shattered assumptions that we, you know, hopefully as, as children hold on a bit to an inherent belief that this world is a safe place for the most part and that there are safe people in it. And then I think it really, I mean, especially because our young people were so, so exposed to news and media and, you know, the information, they were inundated with, with, with fearful information during COVID. As much as we tried to do it well, I was really, really a hard situation to, to do that well and to keep kids with that sense of like safety and security for the most part. I think it, it's, been, it's been challenging across sectors, right? I mean, even, even for my own children in the school that they went to, right, their, their teacher was experiencing profound anxiety and having panic attacks and needing to, and so there's there's pieces of it that I think our kids they really started to question at very very young ages, maybe a little prematurely. Like, goodness, like is is this world a safe place? Um, and what where is my sense of safety and security in this world? And that's that's a big thing to tackle. I mean, that's like. The, the big existential questions in life that we've got like our, our wee ones facing and looking at. And that's why I say that it impacts us spiritually as well. It's not just like the, the physical separation and the emotional and mental impacts of us mm-hmm. um, post COVID, but that spiritually, I think there's some young people that are struggling with these big existential questions that, that really is a direct result of, um, what happened with their experiences with COVID and, and asking themselves some of, some of this. And I think um, having those, those sort of core beliefs rocked or challenged, uh, we're seeing some of the aftermath of that now with anxiety as a, as a direct result. I agree. And it's like you say, it's not just, you know, the young adults, but it's 
mature older adults are also experiencing it. Yes. Yeah. And so well, what- especially in my in, in my circles, I I mean a lot of my friends are mental health professionals, right? Yeah. They're very well educated, you know, in, in amazing positions um, with mental health. And it is so interesting during COVID. And even now, um, a lot of them still talking about how their own mental health was impacted by the pandemic and how even with all of our tools and our tool belts as mental health professionals and all of our skills and knowledge and education, they were also rocked by anxiety um, challenges with socialization, difficulties getting to grocery stores. Even now, even now, yeah. we we're just talking this week with one of my my colleagues who told me that like Costco was overwhelming. Thought she could do it, but couldn't do it just because of the amounts of people. And and that's only post pandemic. And I just think how interesting is it that that even you know with with a wealth of support and education and resources, people have still been impacted. So we have to think about. Our, our kids and how vulnerable they are with their developing brains, how they have been impacted by exposure to toxic stress during COVID. So some of these, these developmental lags that we're seeing in terms of like taking breaks from school or school avoidance, challenges with dating or socializing, some of this is to be expected given some of the challenges or barriers or traumatic experiences that they faced in the wake of COVID. Yes. And how would you describe an episode of anxiety? Like, how does, you know, sometimes, like I've known, you know, um, this is podcast that I, that I listened to, and this person was a news anchor, and then he had an anxiety attack while he was broadcasting And of Mm. course, you know, we from the outside looking at him would not have known what was going on in his head. He seemed to have managed that that episode quite okay from the from us looking in. But Mm -hmm. inside him, he was going through a horrible, horrible episode. But I don't know, like what what happens to a person when they're starting to get anxious and have anxiety attack? Well, there's such a broad range of different anxiety disorders and how anxiety manifests in any one individual. So really it's a, it's a wide range of experiences, but I think some of like the hallmarks of anxiety that most people can kind of like relate to or connect to is definitely, you know, excessive fear or worry, right? So your thoughts and your feelings are going to feel nervous, anxious, worried, fearful, trepidatious. That's that's the thoughts and feelings component of anxiety. But the second piece of it is really going to be your physiological reaction in your body and your brain. And that often really is demonstrated by hyperarousal, right? So when your fight or flight system is engaged, when your sympathetic nervous system is engaged, you're going to experience symptoms of increased heart rate, not feeling like you can take a deep breath, the tight chest, maybe difficulties breathing or shallow breathing. Um, some people experience tightness in their tummy and they can get um, feelings of nausea, even diarrhea. Like there's physical symptoms that manifest as a result of experiencing anxiety. Some people will experience panic attacks where they get a flood of these symptoms um, for a short duration of time and they feel completely uh, overwhelmed by this, this physiological hyperarousal. 
And then there's some that it might be more of a mental experience where it really is just such an overwhelm. You could even experience intrusive thoughts and images in, in moments of, of anxiety, right? Especially as we look at like obsessive compulsive disorder being within the umbrella of, of anxiety. And then trauma. Trauma is also under the umbrella of anxiety disorders. And so we see things like re-experiencing of traumatic events muscle tension, you know, uh, nightmares and flashbacks. And I think it's different for everybody in terms of how they actually experience or manifest anxiety in their thoughts and their feelings and in their bodies. But there's usually some sort of shared experience in terms of this feeling of complete overwhelm and fear or worry that dominates in these moments. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And, you know, and people, like you say, individually, they'll have they'll have their own mechanism, their their own way of dealing with it that comes up for them. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, um, if, you know, when people are listening to this and maybe they identify with what mm-hmm. we're talking about, what can an individual do in? you know, as they feel that something is coming up, they're, they're starting to get a little bit Mm -hmm. of uh, an anxiety. I know one of my sisters before the pandemic had issues of anxiety and she would call me from wherever she was. And then I would talk to her until she made it back home. And it's just in the talking to her that, that um, she was able to calm down. So what can an individual do to manage and not, because I don't know, I think anxiety can go full blown and be really bad, you know, where they have Mm -hmm. to hospitalize. But before it gets to that point where it's out of control, what can someone do? So this is my favorite question because the coolest, the coolest and most exciting part of, you know, the neuroscience of trauma is looking at the brain's capacity to build resilience and to rebound back after trauma. The incredible thing is that through our entire lifetime, our brain has the capacity to change and adapt and so even though the pandemic may have pre-wired our brains for this anxious response, we do have a lot of power and control in being able to change the way our brain works and the paths that it takes when we're starting to feel anxious. There's so much hope in the neuroscience. I mean, neuroplasticity, we have the capacity to change our brains and the way our brain grows and develops until the day we die. Our brain does not, I mean, we lose the um like the amount of effort that is required to change our brain it definitely increases over time that's why they say it's difficult to teach an old dog new tricks for sure it takes a little bit more time and a little bit more effort but we actually have the potential to change our brains the very structures and neurochemistry of our brains can be changed all the way th- through our entire lives So it doesn't matter what age we're at, we can do it. And so definitely with anxiety, there's a number of different pieces that we can do. Um, I look at them sort of a little bit differently. So the first one, especially post-pandemic, because 
of how long we were in this sort of hypervigilant, hyperaroused state of anxiety with the pandemic. I do believe it will take a bit of a commitment in terms of undoing some of those patterns of our thinking and some of those behavioral patterns that we've maybe put in place unknowingly or unwittingly as a result of it. So I believe that committing to a regular practice of how we're going to rewire our nervous system response is essential in someone who's really, really experiencing profound anxiety and is looking for some healing. And I mean, definitely as Indigenous people, I have so many of the answers are actually in our traditional teachings, right? Get out on the land, be in nature. You want to bring your anxiety response down? Well, guess what? In two minutes of being in nature, you have reduced muscle tension, reduced stress hormones, reduced heart rate, and reduced blood pressure. All of those things are impacted by anxiety. All of those things are heightened and are aroused by thoughts and feelings of anxiety and and panic attacks. You want to be able to reset your baselines, get out into nature. Within two minutes, you're going to have an immediate response of how your brain and your body are functioning. Like that is, what a gift. What a gift that we have. Those are our teachings is get on the land. It's land-based therapy. We need more land-based therapy. Um, And I certainly, through the pandemic, um, I mean, even pre-pandemic, I was already doing a lot of land-based work, but never so much as now. Like I, I am rarely to never in an office. I really am outside. I am going on walks. I am going to the beach. Um, I am in the field. I'm in the bog. I am on the trail. And I really try to do as much as I possibly can with my clients outside because being able to have that calming of the nervous system that occurs when you're out in nature while you're talking about the things that are hard for you can be soothing and allow you to move to deeper places than you could if you're in the confines of I mean, think about it. A lot of people associate office environments with a lot of stress. Yeah. And so I don't I don't know if office environments are really the best place for us to do counseling, other than the fact that they're private and confidential and maybe give us a sense of security or privacy or anonymity in those ways. But I really believe some of my my best work is done when we are out on the land, rewiring our nervous system to respond in calmer ways over periods of time. And they say 120 minutes a week. Um, is is what is required to reset our our nervous system is get out in nature right connect yeah. with the land take your shoes and your socks off in the middle of winter I mean I was out at Harrison Lake last weekend and um, getting right in there right it's freezing cold but it is so incredibly grounding and if you know anything about trauma really taking in our five senses, what you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you feel and what you taste. If you can really connect with those things in any given moment where you're potentially catapulted into your past or even with anxiety that usually sets us off into the future of what ifs and what could be's. If we can just be in the present moment and grounding, nature is one of the most beautiful ways that we can ground. Put your feet in the soil, you know, touch a tree. I I was rubbing cedar between my fingers last weekend and feeling the sticky residue and then smelling and just engaging with that sense of smell and sticky and touch. And it's, um, it brings you back into the present moment, right? And that's, 
essential for when we've experienced trauma and we're having that re-experiencing is that we want to be back into the here and now and realizing we're not that child that was separated um, back at the age of five or six and that we have so much more power and autonomy and that we are here in 2023 as an adult with the capacity to make our own decisions and choose who we are with. Uh, That can be very very, uh, I think, important in terms of healing is is really having those grounding tools and techniques for when we're experiencing anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you've, so you've got two things, you know, that we could do. One is to make a commitment to do something. And then Mm -hmm. two is to go on to the LAN and, um, get in touch with your five senses, you know, so feel something, smell the air, taste. I mean, you can even taste the air, you know, like you can. can. Yeah. So you can, you know, get, get in touch with, because once you get in touch with, with your senses, then you're, you're on your way to be being grounded. You know, you're in touch with that. Right. I think some of the anxieties that occur, it takes you, outside your body right I mm-hmm. think it I mean does. I haven't yes. had an anxiety uh, issue but I'm presuming that you're not in touch with your body yeah some people experience profound association with anxiety and trauma and where you disconnect right yeah some people even see themselves outside of their body and and don't feel in it in those moments yeah. you know and so I think anyways that we can recalibrate a hypervigilant nervous system. And so many of us have hypervigilant nervous systems post-pandemic, so many of us. And there's lots of different ways. There's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not like everybody needs a psychologist and to go to therapy and do CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes, many people benefit from that. I do that, I offer that. But I know that that's not everybody's path to healing. So if we can find different ways to recalibrate that nervous system response, maybe it's yoga, maybe it's mindfulness. Maybe it's re-engaging in sports and joining your soccer club again. For some, it's religion. For some, it's culture, arts. But you have to find what works for that individual and support that path for them. I mean, one of the easiest and quickest, if we are looking for some nice quick tools to to talk about today for, Mm -hmm. for listeners, honestly, breath is number one. It is the quickest and it is absolutely the easiest. And that's just because deep breathing increases the oxygen to the brain and stimulates our parasympathetic nervous system. So whenever we can deep breathe, and I I think that um, one of the things I really encourage people to think about is we always think about the inhale. So we do these you know, really great inhales, low and slow and as deep as you can. But man, our exhale, pushing out, you know, what is toxic and the carbon dioxide and and making sure that we empty and squeeze every last drop of that in our lungs, in our exhale and making those as controlled and long as our inhales um, is equally important. And as soon as, you know, your your brain is like, oh, we're, we're breathing deeply here, right? It sort of is a lovely reset, stimulating our parasympathetic nervous system, our rest and digest mode to be like, okay, we're safe right now. Because an anxiety is typically a feeling of like being unsettled and unsafe. And we need to be in fight or flight mode. Like we have to be on guard and ready to jump into action to either run away from something or to fight something in our environment. And so we need to, to, you know, to, to change that and, and delve into the, 
to the parasympathetic and say, no, we're okay. We are able to just be in this moment. We are safe. So your breath can actually let your brain know that we're safe and okay in this moment. Breath is the simplest and easiest to get us there. That sounds wonderful. I mean, of course, you know, I, I'm totally, you're speaking to the choir. I've been a meditator for <laughs> years and, and for me, that helps me. And I think that's grounded me for so many years because, I mean, I started meditating in university with a group of my friends and I never gave it up. So I found wow. that it's actually helped me like after my stroke, the partial stroke that I had, I think it was my ability to meditate actually helped me in fine tuning and remembering certain things and being present. I, th I really believe that was part of uh, the recovery that, that went so well because of that. Uh -huh. Well, and that's, you know, it's so interesting is that like our amygdala, our emotional response center of the, the brain that is engaged in our, our fight or flight or our sympathetic nervous system response, uh, experienced meditators, they have found that they actually have smaller size of their amygdala. So we can actually shrink our amygdala, which has been known to become enlarged with the experience of toxic stress or trauma in our history. So if you have an enlarged amygdala as a result of your anxiety or your trauma in, in your background, if you want to reduce the size of your brain, you can actually do that with mindfulness practice. Isn't that incredible? Like we really do have so much power over our body and our brain that we don't realize by what we can do in our day to day to change or alter that course. Like there's so much hope in that. How incredible that we can we can actually reduce the size of an enlarged part of our brain just with meditation and mindfulness. Incredible. It is incredible <laughs> because it's there, right? And it's, mm -hmm. yeah. and it's free. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, no medication, no drugs. This is something that you can do with your time and your thinking and your feelings and your own body. Yeah. I mean, even to the point, say, you know, if, um, you know, like a couple of times when I've almost had a car accident, you know how you just get into that state when you just almost hit something or did something and your heart starts beating really fast. If yes. I just sit for, you know, and catch my breath, as they say, but when you breathe in and you breathe out slowly, it will, it will slow your heartbeat down. It'll slow it down. So, um, just doing that after almost getting into an accident or something is, is so beneficial because you're immediately doing something to calm yourself down. Absolutely. And that's it. I mean, what you're describing is you're switching your nervous system response. So when you, when, when your heart has started to beat like that, yeah. um, you have, so you've, you've engaged your sympathetic nervous system. That is your fight or flight mode. Like, Oh my gosh, I'm not safe. Something scary is happening. Right. Yeah. And that deep breath has now engaged your parasympathetic mode. And you are like, no, you're okay. You're going to be all right. You're safe right now. Let's be calm. Absolutely. Beautiful example. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's I mean, it's, it really is. Uh, I mean, this subject is so, 
I mean, this conversation is really powerful because I know there are so many people that are experiencing this and just wondering how they're going to get, you know, yesterday when I was talking to one of my sisters, she, I asked her, how are you doing? Because she lost her her son recently and then her grandson six months before. Like, so she had two oh. two major deaths, you know, and so I'm, I'm continually checking in on her to see how she's doing. And so she says, um, I'm okay right now, this mm. minute. And that's all I can really, really do. It's minute to minute or hour to hour for her in terms of, because then she wow. goes, I mean, she's still grieving, you know, for her son and her grandson, but mm-hmm. she's looking at it from hour to hour. Wow. That's heartbreaking. That's so hard. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it really is, it's, it's really difficult. And, you know, I, you know, as I mean, I lost a lot of family members during the pandemic. And you don't really know what someone is experiencing until you experience it yourself. Because I remember when my, my um, mother was really ill, and she was, you know, almost we knew she was going to be passing anytime. She was 97. But you don't feel the loss until she actually has passed, right? You think you're mm-hmm. prepared for it. But when it's time, and then, you know, somebody says, okay, your mother just passed. And then you get that residual feeling in your body and the grief. But you can't, you can't presuppose how you're going to feel until it happens. Right. And the same with, you know, having empathy and compassion for somebody who has had, who's lost a son and a daughter, I mean, a son and a grandson and um, what they're going through because you haven't experienced it. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to, to, to know what they're going through, you know, because another sister of mine lost her daughter a year ago and that was sudden and unexpectedly. And she's just now, you know, getting to the point of accepting, but not forgetting. Right. And so it's really, I mean, these issues that, and that's traumatic in itself, right. That's a trauma. When you, yes, when you lose absolutely. a loved one, because it, yeah. it goes back to what you said at the beginning, it's separation, right? But it's a separation right. in the finality. Mm-hmm. There's no future with that person anymore. There's no promise of anything. So it's the final, the finality of understanding that it's over completely. And that's where the trauma is, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, well, it's, it's so different, right, for everybody in terms of experiencing grief and loss. Yeah, but I think, um, yeah, definitely in whenever we lose anybody, it can be so incredibly painful. And then there's things that make make grief complex, right? Uh, Especially through the pandemic, where people, you know, didn't get to spend as much time didn't get their goodbyes, weren't able to be in the hospital, couldn't visit. Um, 
you know, I, I have supported families who, you know, they were, when they were sick, they couldn't visit their, their relatives who they knew were dying, but then they didn't want to, to make it even worse for them. And so, you know, the guilt and lack of connection and time spent that they normally would be able to be more free with has led to so much in terms of complex feelings after that guilt, you know, grief that is, uh, it's, it's harder to accept and there's some anger and hurt there for sure. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, and then for, I don't know about for yourself, but myself, my goodness, just, you know, I think with friends and family and definitely I, I, I strongly believe our indigenous communities and families are impacted so much more, but just with, you know, the, the opioid crisis and so many losses due to, to overdose death and stuff is, you know, really, really rocked my circles personally. And, uh, you know, the, the complex feelings that come up with those unjust deaths and from a tainted drug supply and losing people so incredibly young when it's not, um, you know, those those end years of life, I think also adds a layer of complexity to the grieving process when we feel so much hurt and injustice at a situation that's happening that's so well beyond our control as well. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I mean, the whole, I mean, the opioid crisis and uh, that's a whole other arena because there's so many, it's so complex and so complicated because, you know, with, I know in my family, I had a brother that was, um, I guess alcoholic is, is, and, and I knew if he continued, it wasn't going to end well. He mm -hmm. knew it, but he really was not able to stop in as much as mm. he wanted to. And I, and, you know, often people will say, well, you know, if that person really wanted to, they could stop, but Honestly, they can't. At some point, they've gone beyond the point of stopping. And yet, like like you say, everybody's different. And yet some could be years and years of alcoholism and just stop one day. <laughs> they can do it. Mm -hmm. But others can't, right? So right. We're, they're all so different. And, and um you know, I, I believe that, you know, we just need to have compassion for the person and not lose sight of the fact that they're humans. And mm -hmm. at one point, they were a little, little person, a little, little human, a child. And they're still that person, right? Mm -hmm. Like you say, you know, even though you, you could be older and mature, you're still the same person that was that six-year-old child, the six-year-old girl, six-year-old boy, you're still that person, you know? And so with my brother, I used to think of him um, as a little guy. He, cause he started residential school when he was five. Wow. And, you know, he, and I can see him, you know, as a little five-year-old and he was never, you know, even when he grew up, he wasn't tall. He was like five ten. And he was slender. He was a little guy. Um, but when you recognize that they are still the same little person in an adult body, right? Mm -hmm. And yes. then, yeah, <laughs> then you can 
then you can have that, you don't, you're not able, well, you then you can have that compassion, that empathy, and you don't get mad at them because often people will get mad at the person struggling. Yes. And I think if you switch it around your perception of them as a child, how can you get mad at your child, right? Mm-hmm. Which is often, just re- just reflecting back to our earlier conversation, which you know, really is probably where they're, they are still in terms of their stunted development, given the trauma. Think about that. There's a piece of them that truly is quite childlike in a lot of ways because they haven't been able to grow and flourish and develop in healthy ways because of the trauma that occurred at that young age. There's a piece of them that still is five years old. Yes. It helps us cultivate compassion, right? It helps us to understand and cultivate a, a heart of compassion for someone who's struggling in addiction. It doesn't mean it doesn't, you know, ravage our own heart with worry. Definitely having having my family members struggling, um, you know, with opioid addiction during an opioid crisis and a tainted drug supply during the pandemic. Like my my anxiety was heightened. My fear was there. It was real. Um, and definitely there's times when you're just like, oh, and it's frustrating and it's painful. Um, but you know, the, the anger is so misdirected at times, right? It, it yeah. should be for a system that fills our people and a, a legacy of intergenerational trauma that contributes to having addiction so rampant in our communities in the first place. Like that's where I try to redirect my anger and then turn it into something good that we can transform into some, you know, movement for social justice and healing for our people. Oh yeah, that that is so good. You you've said that so that's so true. You said that so well. And so we just have a few more minutes and what I want to end with is there anything that you thought of during our conversation that you'd like to say um in a positive way to end the uh, podcast? Yeah, I think, you know, if we can be kind and compassionate and gentle with ourselves, understanding about the impacts on our loved ones, on our children, and on ourselves in terms of maybe our own fears and anxieties, right? So specifically, let's make this personal for a moment. Yeah. As as mothers, where we're so anxiously worried for our children and where they're going and their success and their happiness and their own families for the future, Right. I mean, that that in and of itself is anxiety, that that excessive worry um, and recognizing that and being careful and mindful and meaningful not to project that out on our, to our children. So being able to be kind and compassionate for ourselves, like we're doing the best as we can as mothers. We haven't failed them. We're working hard and we will always be that soft place for them to land and we will be there to support and love them. Knowing that and honoring that for ourselves as mothers and women, I think is incredibly important. And that is going to be the base from which, you know, we are going to find our own healing, but also the strength that our children can borrow from us to be able to do their own healing and embark on their own healing journey. Um, so to have a little bit of, of faith and love and confidence that if we can be kind and compassionate and loving with ourselves, that our children can borrow from us that and be able to do the same in terms of being able to look at how they address the anxiety and how that plays a part in their lives. So I think that's that's a piece I would love to leave us all all with, right? Just in terms yeah. of easing 
that pressure that we put on ourselves, right? Yes, exactly. Well, you know, as you were just ending with what what you were just saying, I feel a sense of hope myself as a parent, just in your words, have given me comfort because it's hopeful. You know, once we can see ourselves as, see ourselves lovingly and know that Mm. we're doing the best that we can within this situation, there is hope in that. There is possibility mm-hmm. in that, and there's there's really um, strength in that. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, absolutely, there is so much hope in all of this. There's so much hope. You know, I think that's where the the science has just like brought so much to light in terms of the possibilities for our for our brain and how that can carve out new neural pathways with just some small change, which is what we've talked about today, breath work, um, setting our intentions, being, finding that hope, holding on to that and clinging to that as mothers and as young people in a society that is really, you know, in a very interesting time in our history, if we can hold on to the fact um, that there is so much hope and love out there and try to find out the ways that we can apply that to ourselves and our hearts and our behaviors and our homes. That is where, you know, the, the best futures for all of us really reside is if we can hold on to that and promote that in ourselves and offer that to others. Absolutely. Absolutely. As we pass that on, then others can take that and pass that on too to their, you know, I'm thinking about the listeners that are listening to this podcast at the moment that, you know, if they, you know, adopt some of the things we, we mentioned, you know, the intention, the commitment, using nature and going out into nature and just going for a walk, um, even going, you know, when you go for a walk in the, in the morning, like I often used to go for a walk in my garden first thing in the morning, just to reset my circadian rhythm so that I can have a nice restful sleep at night. So it's, I'm doing something Mm. early in the morning, but it, the benefit of that won't happen until the evening when I'm going to sleep. Right. So Mm -hmm. that to say that some of the things that we incorporate and adopt won't have immediate effect but it will happen and you have to just trust the process that it will have a positive impact on on our on our life and our children around us and our friends around us it's you know it's like it's like a a ripple in in the water right you throw a stone in the water and it and then it it goes out and so you're impacting your whole circle of friends and i think mm-hmm. that is is a a positive way to to leave the the um podcast and i just want to add that you know people that are experiencing trauma from the news this week of the uh, the bones that were discovered in Saskatchewan, that the one eight hundred number for 
for getting help for that is 1-866-925-4419 if they need counseling, Mm. some help um, to deal with some trauma that might have come up, that there is a number for that and there will be people there that they can talk to. And, Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, you know, the foundation that I founded, seventh generation Indigenous foundation and training, we develop courses to deal with trauma. That's what we do. And that's, that's what we're about. And I just want to thank people that have contributed to the foundation so we can develop these courses. And the Mm -hmm. course that we're developing right now is, is a foundational course and it's to deal with trauma in a way that, that is, you know, we, we put into it, you know, the indigenous worldview, because once we look at a process through the lens of our indigenous culture, we have a connection to it. And it's mm-hmm. through that connection that we can, we feel safe. And we also, we feel that it's, that we're being supported by our, ne- our ancestors. And, yeah. um, I never take for granted people who contribute to the foundation because this work uh, is so important, especially, you Mm -hmm. know, when we get news of um, like in Saskatchewan this week where, you know, like you say, this is real. It did happen. And there are bones of residential students, you know, 50, 60 years old, buried. Or I think they said that this discovery, the bone was 120 years old. So it was way at the beginning of of, uh, residential schools. So wow, that's interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I just have shivers. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say for, for those who are listening and who've been impacted to just take some time, take some time with your heart and, you know, be extra compassionate and gentle with yourselves this week. If feelings do surface, right. Yeah. Take those deep breaths, go outside for a walk in nature, do what you can for your own self-care and, and honor the feelings that come up for you. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And Dr. Mervyn, thank you so much. You, Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, you are the first second guest that I've had. And I mm. totally, you know, am so grateful for this conversation. It's so needed, it's required, and it's essential. And if people enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast station Share it with your friends, you know, spread the word around, let them listen to this because this conversation is very important. And thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you giving me your time today. My honor. And I hope you have a really great day and, um, Yeah, just 
keep doing what you're doing. You're doing such great work and uh, it is so necessary. And um, just, just continue the good work. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.